0: Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for academics looking to end the academic overwork burnout cycle and pave a self-compassionate career path, a path supportive of body, mind, and spirit. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 179. I'm Danielle Delamar, and I am here with you for the last episode I'm going to release in the winter of 2024. So what I'm going to start doing is releasing a season's worth of episodes. It's going to be five episodes per actual season so like spring summer fall right and so i am releasing this episode now and i will then release again in early spring and at that time in early spring you'll get a weekly episode for five weeks and then i'll do that again in the summer and do it again in the fall etc now, the reason I decided to do the seasonal thing is, well, a couple reasons. First, because I just, I had a burnout period, right? And I needed to have more space to create the podcast in a way that was a little slower, in a way that was a little more intentional for me. That's one reason. The second reason though is that I just know how consumed academics can get by all the academic clocks, right? The tenure clock, the semester schedule, and I just know how much it can dictate your life, dictate your feelings, dictate your behavior, dictate your thoughts. And it's really, really, really important in my mind to be able to connect to the actual seasons. Because when you know that you are actually in spring, not spring semester, but spring season, there is a particular energy that comes with spring, right? Like it's sort of a an interesting, chaotic time, right? Where you've still got a little bit of winter still going on, but you also are moving into a warmer season and there's a feeling of like, I need to get a little more grounded, like that kind of stuff. And people outside academia know like the changes of the seasons better than those in academia, right? In academia, we're just like, oh, it's fall semester, and it's spring semester, and it's summer. So in an effort to get you to connect more with like Actual, sort of natural seasons, I would like to release my episodes at the beginning of each season. And at that time, what I'd like you to do is ask yourself, what do I want to do for this season? Like, what are my goals for this season? What are my priorities for this season? Keeping in mind that each season is only three months long, (laughs) right? So you can't do it all. So, what are my big, you know, one, two, or three priorities this season? And then come next season, I'll figure out what my next priorities are. But it's this way of connecting to natural rhythms as opposed to these weird, sort of rigid, mechanical, right, unnatural sort of rhythms of the semester that ultimately disconnect you from yourself, from the natural environment, from other people who aren't in academia, So that's what we're going to do. This will be my last episode this winter. And then come spring, the equinox is at the end of March, right? So come spring, at that time, I'll go ahead and release five weekly episodes. And when I do, just take yourself to a place where you kind of get clear on what spring means for you and what you want to prioritize in the spring and try to connect to it, right? So that you're not dominated by that semester system, by that academic system. So yeah, I'm excited for that. In the meantime, though, today I am going to introduce you to Dr. Dan Lair, who is actually my spouse. (laughs) And he's going to talk about Thinking about your academic work as just a job, as opposed to, you know, the end all be all sort of identity piece, right? Like so many of us are so caught up in what it means to be an academic. And he's never, ever, ever had the sense that it means everything, right? He's very much of the opinion that it's his job and he gets something out of it and he likes it, but it is not everything to him. And for so many of us, it has been everything to us. And so I invited him on because I wanted him to talk about what it means to think of your job as just a job and really nothing more. He has an interesting take. It's a little bit different than mine, but an interesting take. And if it resonates with you, I invite you to connect with him and I invite you to think about what you could do to disconnect a little bit from your academic identity, especially if it's consuming you a lot. So yeah, with nothing else for this season, I'll go ahead and introduce you to Dr. Dan Lair. Here he is now. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today. I'm talking to Dr. Dan Lair, Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Dan is in the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. And Dan is my husband. Dun, dun, dun. Hey Dan, how's it going? It's good. How are you? <laughs> good. I have been threatening to bring you on the podcast for a long time. And I know that I see it when when we talk as you like wanting to be on the podcast. Like, I feel like there's part of you that wants to be on the podcast, and then there's part of you that doesn't, like kind of withdraws from that idea. Tell me where I'm wrong. I don't know.
1: Yes, I, I mean, I am happy to be on the podcast, and I don't feel like I'm withdrawing from it.
0: Okay, it's just having two kids and just a whole lot of other stuff going on that makes it hard for us to like coordinate this.
1: It is a little weird. That's true.
0: (laughs) It is a little weird. I will say that I have known you for an awfully long time. Let's see. We've been married for 19 years. And before that, I knew you for three years. What I know about you is that you are the kind of person who is very, very, very grounded in facts and research and current realities. It kind of makes you really sort of frustrated when other people aren't grounded in those things and they just sort of get trapped in their own narratives and then function in the world (laughs) in ways that are unproductive as a result. And you talk about this often as it relates to faculty. And you are someone who has always been a little bit different in terms of like your relationship to your own faculty career. Like you just don't sort of hold on to it as tightly as most faculty I know, as most sort of academics do. I guess I want to just say all of that up front. That's what I know of you. You tell me like where I'm wrong. You tell me how that lands. Any sort of response that feels good after my saying that?
1: Sure. Well, I think first I hear... The kind of veiled critique in there about my need to be more patient with where other people are coming from, and fair enough, that's something that's totally true, and and I'm, I'm, I'm working on. I think that it's the the way that you describe me not holding on as tight to my identity as faculty is pretty true for me. I think I have a pretty clear sense that it is just a job. It's a really good job. It's one that I uh, love. It's meaningful. It's engaging. It's important. It's significant. But it's just a job. And I think that having that perspective has been a pretty powerful anchor for me along the way. Because then I don't get too wrapped up and carried away with my being a faculty member, as being a predominantly defining feature of my identity. It's what I do for a living.
0: As I hear that, I can hear how I've benefited from (laughs) from this. For example, you leaving your tenure track job years and years ago for me to take a tenure track job. That doesn't mean that you were planning on leaving academia. Like We were hoping it was going to work out and we were hoping that, you know, when we got to the new institution, you would find a way to be able to continue with your academic career in the institution I had been hired in. And that did happen. But I'm wondering if your decision to sort of let go and be like, yeah, we can take this job for you, Danielle, and I will, and I will walk away from my tenure track job if that had something to do with this not being quite as attached as many are. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what more there is to it.
1: The one place I think you're wrong, I guess, is I guess when, when we made that decision, it was never in my mind that that was going to result in me leaving academia. I mean, I I was pretty confident that things were going to work out. We had talked about that in the process of of you getting hired. I mean, th- there was a really clear path there, so I guess I w- I was never doing that thinking that I would have to walk away from an academic career. But
0: totally, yeah.
1: Where where you're totally right about this though in terms of kind of what you were describing earlier about the way I you know think about sort of the narratives we have for ourselves and for our jobs and what our career should look like and how that relates to my sense that it's it is just a job and it's not my identity is that you know I left an institution that in the sort of Common narratives that we have in academia would be seen as a more prestigious institution. So, making that move is not something that a lot of people would make. You know, I went from an institution that had a Ph.D. program where I was working with graduate students to an undergraduate only institution, you know, went from a relatively selective private liberal arts college to a, you know, substantially less selective regional branch campus that was serving an entirely different student body. But I wanted to do that. That was actually something that was really exciting to me and made it worth taking the risk because I felt that my work would be more meaningful and have more impact working with a different group of students for whom, frankly, education just matters a lot more. So so there was a lot of opportunity for me in that too that I was excited about in terms of my own career. But, you know, so, so I guess the thing that, Where kind of my view about my career made it easy for me to make that call was that I I wasn't wrapped up in notions of prestige or what you're supposed to do as an academic. I was way more interested in what would work for us as a family and also what would fit better with my own goals for my career and what I wanted to do and the kind of impact that I wanted to have.
0: And do you feel that being at a campus like the one I pulled you to, that is, like you said, substantially less prestigious, <laughs> do you feel that you were more fulfilled at that campus than you were in your previous job? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I, I loved working with those students that I felt like they were more engaged and invested in their education. They saw the transformative value that that education could have on their lives. And they brought that with them to to their approach to school. And their experiences were so much richer and more fun to To engage in the classroom, you know, so my background is in organizational communication. And, you know, here I went to a place where students had really, really rich and, you know, long work histories. And so students were bringing with them life experiences to the classes that I was teaching that were... You know, so much fuller than the sort of traditional, you know, right from high school, you know, from pretty predominantly wealthy backgrounds that I was teaching before. And that to me was just something that really made the classes that I was teaching much more exciting, much more engaging, much more fun to teach. And that was really fulfilling. Like it wasn't just like, oh, the education matters for these students. So it was like, I get to talk about the stuff that I'm interested with students in much deeper and richer ways just because of the lives that they've lived and brought with them to the classroom. I loved it.
0: Okay. I know you have so many stories that sort of illustrate this point can you give us an example do you have something off the top of your head that would sort of illustrate the point
1: sure so at the first institution that i was teaching at you know i got the job right out of grad school and it seemed like the place that i was supposed to be following the track that i was supposed to follow and i remember being really excited because before i even got on campus I'd made a proposal to teach a first year seminar and these were supposed to be interdisciplinary topics on professors' expertise. So not just focused on, on that topic as it shows up in your own discipline, but maybe taking your research area and connecting it to a broader interdisciplinary literature. And you got to have a group of 15 students. You actually were with them during orientation week, and you were supposed to be sort of their primary mentor in their first year of college. And you got to you know have this really focused, highly engaging academic experience. And my class I was super excited about was on the meaning of work. And I thought it was going to be fantastic because I'm like, here we are at the beginning of these students' college careers, and we can really engage the notion of work and get into questions about, well, what do you, it's not just what do you want to be when you grow up, but what do you want to get out of work? What role do you want it to play in your life? What's meaningful to you in terms of the choices that you want to make for work? How important is it to you? you know, all of those questions um, that I think as a culture, at least in America, we don't think a ton about. And so I thought, oh, this will be really, really great. And, you know, my own experience when I was in college, you know, I had worked a lot before I got to college. And then I didn't work all the time when I was in college, but I would work in the summers for sure spent time as a janitor in college which was a fantastic job i thought oh well you know this will be really really great we can we can kind of engage students experiences with work and and use those as a launching point to have these kinds of big meaningful questions about what do they want work to look like for when when they get out of college and I had a really hard time engaging students in that topic, and some of that was me just getting used to who the students were, but some of that was that students you know weren't as interested in that, and some of it was that they didn't have a lot of work experience themselves. And I, I'm kind of rambling in general, but but the specific story I would tell that illustrates that difference was, I remember I had this student, her name was Kelly. We had read some of Paul Willis's famous ethnography, Learning to Labor, which is, for those of you who haven't heard of that, it was an ethnography that was conducted in the UK, trying to understand why efforts to sort of democratize the education system weren't really leading to social mobility and you know, kids, boys in particular, were getting from lower classes, were getting better educations, but then going right back to work in the factory. Um, and why was why was this happening? And this student, Kelly, I remember, she, she was very bothered by their attitudes towards work that she was reading about. And she wrote in an essay about how she just couldn't understand how anybody could approach that. And she just like them, had worked in menial and low-paying jobs, but that didn't sort of sour her view about the role that work could play in her life. And then she went on to describe the job that was menial and low-paying, and she wrote about as if she was like a a chimney sweep in in the 19th century. (laughs) And the job that she described was teaching tennis lessons at her country club for $20 <laughs> an hour as an 18 year old and this is 2006 $20 an hour as an 18 year old in 2006 it was so foreign to my experience i didn't know how to respond to that as as a professor but it was a really like like that was a really predominant sort of viewpoint from these students with really, really privileged backgrounds. So education meant something entirely, entirely different than them than it did to students at, at where, where we went to or where I am now, where, you know, they come in and they see that direct connection of higher education as this vehicle for, you know, transform their lives for and, and transform their families' lives in terms of social mobility. And the stakes are totally different. That makes it much more meaningful, and and much more fun.
0: So I'm thinking about some of what you said about wanting to engage these questions around work back when you were teaching these students. And one of the questions that I wrote down was, what role does work play in your life? And (laughs) I'm wondering what it plays in your life, Dan Lair. How do you sort of think about your own work right now as Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs?
1: That's a really good question. Predominantly, it's a job, right? It's a job that helps me. We have to have a job, right? Like it it helps me provide for our family right it 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 helps me to be able to live and support the the life that we want to live it's it's what i do to make a living and it's that first and foremost above anything else but after that it's also a really good job it's a job where i get to do Meaningful and interesting work that I think matters and makes a difference and engages me and lets me work on problems that I find interesting, lets me work with and support people who. I think are doing great work and and I get to collaborate with, talk with, work with. All of that's great. It's a really, really good job, but it's still just a job. It's, It's what I do to make my living.
0: And if you were to not think of it as just a job, like I know we talk about all the time, how faculty often don't think of their work as just a job. And I'm thinking of somebody in particular that you and I both know, who said to me once, yeah, this is not a job. This is a way of life. When I had said to her that I had, you know, spent the entire Thanksgiving holiday grading. And she's like, yeah, no, this is a way of life. It's not a job. So what is sort of the problem in your mind with thinking about your job as a way of life or a purpose or something like that as opposed to just a job?
1: First, there's an immense amount of privilege that goes into your ability to think about your job as a way of life and not just a job, right? How many people aren't able to do something even remotely like that? The vast majority of people in the world are working because they have to make a living. And some people have very little choice in terms of, of of what that is, right? So I think, you know, at a big level, that kind of response, I chafe at it a bit because I think that, that there is just a ton of often unacknowledged privilege in that perspective. But, you know, beyond that, at a more practical level is... The more that I see people embracing that this is a way of life, the more I see people doing things like you're describing, spending a holiday weekend grading, obsessing over, you know, working on getting a publication out instead of sort of being in the moment and taking time to do something that's not work in a way that that, that, is, that is fulfilling. You know, when I look at people who view it as a way of life, you often see people with you know i'm thinking of 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 mentors and colleagues i've had who you know are really workaholics and end up with health problems end up with relationship problems not that those can't happen even if you're not a workaholic, but they, they seem to be more likely to happen when you're dedicating, when you're dedicating yourself to, to this as a way of life. Looking at people who have regrets, right? You know, senior faculty who kind of always wanted to have kids and then never did because they were so busy early on. So you know, when, it, when it's a way of life, then life becomes about work. There's a lot more to life than work. If you make life about just work, you're missing out on a lot. And then that's when you start getting into burnout and and frustration, um, all sorts of downstream problems from that perspective.
0: You've known this all along. You've always said this. And you (laughs) watched me completely obsess and completely overwork. One of my big things was I would over prep for class. and. I'm thinking back to like my not fully getting it at the time and just like pushing forward. And you saying to me at one point, I feel like you're always in anxiety mode. Like, even when we are just chill on a Sunday afternoon, you are still carrying low grade anxiety with you. I remember you doing things like, We need to go skiing. You need to drop your dissertation. And you know, this, well, this was a big one for us. We'd go skiing and I would have, you know, all my books and papers with me and I would try to be like working as much as I could on the way up to the mountain. And then I wanted to leave early so I could work more on it. (laughs) And this wasn't just in grad school. This was when I was faculty as well. And I guess what I would like to know is like what is it like to sort of be a family member of somebody who is such a work addict. I think that's kind of a good question because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in burnout mode because they were in that position for so many years.
1: Well, that feels like a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I would start answering that by saying I mean, I got it, right? We were working in the same profession, right? So I knew I knew where it was coming from. I knew why you were doing that. You know, it, it, it's not like, you know, you were some strange foreign creature whose habits I could not understand. <laughs> so I knew where it was coming from. And I also get it. I mean, it's not like I didn't have moments, too, where I'm like, okay, I got to get I have this deadline coming up or I'm behind grading or whatever, you know, moments where, you know, the job takes over. I actually, like, think that's one of the good things about this profession, at least as a faculty member, I guess a little bit more than an associate dean though, is that 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 sort of like flexibility and variability. So I got it. You know, there are moments where I was in that same that same mode myself. But I mean, you know, it's hard. Like you just want to be able to shut off and forget about work and, and just go skiing and not have to have your partner reading a book while you're on your way back down from the mountain you know you might want to be able to talk or stop and have a beer i guess at times it would just feel like we're cramming non-work things into these tight little windows where okay we can have fun for four hours now right instead of just being able to be so yeah i mean that you know i understood i got where it was coming from but it could be frustrating for sure
0: Mm, You answered that with a whole lot of grace. I'm really, really impressed right now, (laughs) Dean. What about your job right now is frustrating to see? Because I know that one of the things that I brought up earlier is that you watch people get really trapped in narratives. And you watch that sort of affect the way they work and the way they relate to other people. I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be about like this particular job, but like what is most frustrating in your mind when faculty get too trapped in a particular narrative, like a particular context or something?
1: I think that happens at kind of two levels. So one is I really feel for the faculty who who get themselves trapped in that you know like like you can you can really you know see the ways in which they struggle over you know feelings of burnout, feelings of not being appreciated, feelings of you know being being overwhelmed, and then that starts to produce you know, real frustration or anger. There's just kind of a, a whole suite of negative emotions that, that can go together when, when people feel trapped in their sort of narratives of what they have to do. I mean, you, you, can just, you can just see it, right? You can see the ways in which that produces outcomes that are not good for the faculty member and then organizationally you put all of that together and have a bunch of faculty members who are feeling that way as well and and it's not healthy for the organization because you have people who are frustrated you have people who are you know feel like they're not valued who you know are upset with what's happening and then maybe you know it's happening in an institution and then maybe don't approach addressing those issues in constructive ways that might make meaningful change and make and make the institution function better right and 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 then it becomes kind of a vicious cycle right because then the organization is kind of lagging a bit it's not able to support faculty as as well as it might in other ways which makes faculty more frustrated and so that sense of sort of tension or conflict that can be all too common at at higher education institutions. It's not just because you know faculty are kind of often, you know, stuck in, in, in particular narratives about, about what they're doing and why they're doing it. It's a big component of it. Um, and it's not it's not good for them. It's not good for for the places they work either.
0: Do you have an example? I'm thinking about your overproducing example that we talked about a million times.
1: Yeah, I was just. In fact, I was just working on this and in and, and updating my work on this. A bit of a background behind this for the last you know, couple of years on on my campus, there has been a real push to reduce the faculty workload. It's been a push for decades, but but it really, really accelerated over the last couple of years and came to a head early this spring semester. You know, so we are an institution on a four-four teaching load teaching and for a long time faculty for very good reasons have felt overworked you know you're teaching a lot there's still research and service that you that you have to do and you know like everywhere there's pressures on you know increasing class sizes you know all of those kinds of things that, that that I think are pretty common experiences in higher education, but it's really reached a head in the last couple of years, where faculty you know very palpably feel like they are overworked, and I don't think that they're wrong about that, but it's interesting where the sources of that come from. So what the project you were just talking about was something that I was asked to do by my dean to look at faculty productivity and compare it to what the expectations actually are for scholarly activity. So it's a little hard to do this because it's you know when you're comparing scholarship across disciplines it's not exactly apples to apples kinds of comparisons but it can get pretty close in terms of you know like hey, this is a conference paper this is a this is a book chapter this is a, a peer reviewed pub you can get somewhere close so what I did was you know for this project I was working on as we were considering reducing the workload on our campus was I. Looked at the expectations for scholarship in most of the departments in in my college. It didn't look at the expectations for the creative performing arts because that's kind of its own. That, that's where the apples to apples comparisons really fall off. But looking at the humanities, social sciences, sciences, and. If I could take the most cynical, narrow reading of guidelines for tenure and promotion and say, what is the minimum amount of scholarly activity I have to do to be able to get tenure and promotion here, right? So that was one side of the study. And then the other side was looking at actual faculty productivity and there you know, because I was trying to produce a study that would work in faculty's favor as much as possible. So there I was trying to exclude faculty work if there was a question. So as an example it would be, some departments would, would count doing a presentation with a student as at our undergraduate research conference as scholarly activity. And if they did, I would count it. Other departments they're a bit vague on that issue, so I would just exclude that. So, so what I wanted to have was a deliberate undercount of actual scholarly activity, because that would work in faculty's favor in terms of an analysis of how much work are faculty actually doing. And when you compare those two things together, what I found was, and this is again, it's a pretty rough analysis. It's not easy to make these comparisons, but that on average in our college faculty are producing about five times the minimum expectation for scholarly activity at tenure, about five and a half times the minimum expectations for scholarly activity at promotion, and five times the minimum scholarly activity for their post-tenure review. And right, that's really, really striking to me, because I completely understand where faculty are coming from, right? They're producing a lot of scholarly activity with a a very heavy teaching load. But on the other hand, right, like, like, they're feeling like the university is overworking them, because they're producing at this level. And yet, they are, they're not just exceeding, they're quintupling the amount of scholarship that the university actually expects. And there are reasons for that. There are good reasons for that. One is just because, you know, faculty are really incredibly passionate about their research and what they want to do, right? Like they're really driven by that. So they want to do that. And two, you know, we are a regional comprehensive open access institution, and and you know there are faculty who have dreams of moving on to more. You'd see the, the the air quotes around prestigious universities, and and scholarship is the currency that lets them do that. So they're investing their time to do that. So there are reasons why faculty are producing this much scholarship, and yet at the same time the argument is that the university is expecting too much, but, but actually the university is expecting five times less than than what faculty are producing on average. So that's a pretty interesting disconnect to me, you know, that sort of illustrates the way faculty are, are working within a particular narrative or a particular framework. And ultimately, we had a proposal on the table to go from a 4-4 to a 3-3. There were lots of Lots of things that happened that it would not behoove me to get into the details of in public about that, but ultimately that didn't happen. It wasn't feasible for the university to be able to make that move. And then, you know, faculty are, are, are naturally and rightly incredibly upset, frustrated, angry, feeling betrayed by the institution as a result. So it's been a really, really rough semester here. Like there are lots of, very, very legitimate grievances that faculty have that's driving that. But there's this dynamic underneath it, this this sort of disconnect between, you know, you're doing so much work that's so far above what you're actually asked to do.
0: And it's striking me that they're going up for 10 years. So most of them are not like trying to produce a lot so that they can get out of this type of institution and into a more sort of research intensive institution, Right. These are faculty who are staying generally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, they are a lot. And and I suppose there's a third reason that this happening is there are some sort of shadow requirements for tenure. This is a cultural issue where, you know, senior colleagues would be like, well, yeah, you're meeting the minimum, but you really need to do a bunch, you know, more just to be sure that you're safe.
0: Yeah. This is so common. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's
1: really, really common. And it's really unproductive and an unhelpful, and it's something I think as, as, a, as a culture in, in academia, we've got to find a way to try to, to move away from that, because that's where you get all sorts of inequities that emerge around these, these sorts of shadow requirements. Right? So there are reasons that people are doing this, but the reasons aren't necessarily because the university is asking them to do too much. so. When I, when I think about it, I'm like, well, there are a couple of things that that faculty could do that, that, that could make a difference, even if the university doesn't make any changes. And it's one, faculty could work less, right, on their research, right? They could, you know, get, you know, maybe the minimum number or double the minimum number instead of five times, right? They could consciously choose to work less and then and then feel less overwhelmed, or they could know that they're making a choice. And I think a lot of that frustration and that burnout comes from a sense of a lack of agency, right? Well, okay, so produce five times what you're asked to do, but know that that's a conscious choice that you're making and own that conscious choice. And then you probably won't feel as subjectively bad about it because you will recognize the agency you have to make that choice.
0: I really want to get to an example that you have of a faculty member who had thought that she was not ready to go up for full professorship, and she was kind of like just handing you her materials, and what do you think? This is back when you were chair, and I'd love you to tell that story, but I'll stop myself and ask if there's anything else you want to say, because I totally cut you off.
1: No, that's fine. I think that's a good illustration of that sense too. So yeah, I had, I'd come in as a department chair, you know, was hired as an outside chair. And so I was not privy to, and I certainly was not, would not be sympathetic to any of these kinds of like shadow requirements about what you really need to do. That's not what is listed on the page. But I had a faculty member who came to me, you know, she said, hey, I I'm really interested in going up for full in the next few years. Could we sit down and look at my portfolio and, and you could tell me, you know, what I need to do to be able to make sure that, that I am, you know, ready, right. Um, That, that, that I'm in, I'm in a good, a good position to go up. She'd been been associate for like seven years and was thinking, Oh, in the next few years, I I, want to be able to go up for full. And so, she sent me her portfolio and I looked at it and she met the criteria for full. I mean, she didn't like double it, triple it, quadruple it, but she very clearly met and slightly exceeded the criteria for full. And so my answer to her was, well, what you need to do is to put in your application for full. You're good. You're ready. <laughs> like." Look, like that was kind of you know she was like really i'm like yeah like, like let's look at the guidelines let's look at what you need to do let's look at what you've done like you you meet the guidelines and you're a little bit ahead of them um, you should put in your application and so she did and she got full cuz she richly deserved it she's she's amazing right but there was just this sort of like sense that i think this is maybe me speaking for her i mean i guess we've never talked about it in this detail before. So, you know, if you're listening out there, sorry for maybe putting words in your mouth. But I think the narrative that she must have had in her head was, I need to do more, right? I need to do more. And just doing this is, is, is not enough. But it is enough, right? Like, that's a choice that you're making at that point. If you've, if you've met what's asked of you, You don't need to feel like you need to reach this sort of amorphous more. But that's a story we tell ourselves, right? The story we tell ourselves as faculty is like, it's not enough. I need to do more.
0: Yeah. And when you say that, I'm imagining many listeners breathing a little bit more deeply, right? Like some of that self-pressure is coming off a little bit. And I love what you say about, like, even if the institution does nothing, what we can do as individual faculty is work less, and if we don't work less, know at least that it's a choice. In under what circumstances would you say that advice is not true? I mean... Those circumstances I'm imagining are very not relevant to many people, right? Like these are, we're talking like a high, like Ivy League sort of institution. Yes? No? Tell me where I'm wrong. What are you thinking?
1: Yeah, you keep wanting me to tell you where you're wrong, but you're usually right. (laughs) 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 <laughs> the, <laughs> Ooh,
0: good answer. Good answer.
1: <laughs> so, you know, I'm speaking from my experience, the institutions that I've been at, right? And I clearly recognize that this isn't the experience everywhere. But I also have seen people in the institutions that I've been at sort of operating in those narratives when you would look and you'd be like, that's, that's not, you've got more choice than you than you feel here. But places where there are really clear limits to that would be you know, one, the more sort of vague and nebulous that your tenure and promotion guidelines are, the harder it is to do that because the bar that you have to meet is not particularly clear. And then second, that works in tandem with sort of cultures, right? Like when departmental, institutional cultures are sort of built around a base level cultural expectation of more, it's really hard to buck against that. And then those two things work in concert with each other, right? That, that oh, if the bar to meet for tenure or promotion is not particularly clear and there's this cultural expectation that you do more, how are you ever going to know that you've done enough, right? And I think you're right. Like the the more, again, there's the air quotes around prestigious, right? But the more prestigious you go, where getting tenure and promotion becomes about some sort of nebulous idea of your contributions to the field, the harder and harder it is going to to be able to know where you can draw the line, right? And And know when you're making a choice or when you're chasing after choices that somebody else has made for you. There's a very clear sense that we have I think, writ large in academia that can produce this kind of nebulous that that makes it hard to draw those boundaries. And some of this we've talked about this too, but I think some of this comes from the way that we're trained and socialized, right? So, like you know that something that drives me crazy like so part of my research background was representations of work and popular culture and sort of popular rhetorics about what work is and what work is what work is like. The way that higher ed gets portrayed in popular culture drives me crazy, right? You know, I'm thinking here of that Netflix show, the chair that everybody was so excited about for a little bit. And it drove me nuts because I'm like, that's not what it's like. Like the vast majority of faculty in the United States at least are not teaching at institutions with these beautiful mahogany bookshelves and, and these like, you know, elaborate conference rooms, right. We're teaching with like 10 surplus desks from the 1950s and those kinds of things. Right. But we have that kind of image, but we also come right. Like, like our system is people are coming with PhDs from R1 institutions who are trained by faculty who are at R1 institutions, who are themselves trained by faculty who are at R1 institutions. And so that's the predominant framework that we have as we are sort of being socialized into the profession. And then we disperse into a wide variety of institutional types that for the most part, don't reflect those kinds of institutions. And so we bring those sorts of norms and visions with us because we don't know anything else, right? That can show up in terms of the way that people are advised in graduate school. I I don't know how many people who I've talked to who had advisors who viewed working at an institution like mine or where we work together as you know something of a failure right like like you didn't you know fully achieve your potential and that that happens a lot but you know my advisor who was fantastic, who was really great and supportive. And even though I went to a, my first job was at a more prestigious institution, I had always talked about wanting to, to work at different kinds of institutions, you know, serving different kinds of students. And he was incredibly supportive of that. I never for, for, for once got a whiff from him that that would somehow be a disappointment or me not living up to my potential. But he also didn't have a remote frame of reference to, to, to help me think about what it would be like to work in one of these kinds of institutions, right? That wasn't his frame of reference. And so I, I guess we, we come in to the types of institutions that dominate American higher education with a frame of reference that is based on what works at a much thinner slice of educational institutions. And that produces, I think, some real, real... Tensions. So that's a very long and rambling answer to say like, yes, those pressures that that sort of vagueness is much, much more real at the more, quote unquote, prestigious institutions, the more research driven institutions. And then we bring that with us into institutions that are more teaching focused in ways that can produce a real disjuncture.
0: And I would say then going back to your advice, work less. And if you don't work less, know it's a choice that is relevant to most of us, to most of us. So just sort of check in with yourself. Perhaps you could work less than you believe you can kind of thing. And this is like, even
1: like, take it out of of scholarship for a second too. It's true with teaching, you know, like this was a conversation that you and I would have a lot about the point of diminishing returns, right? Where you know like like you were so incredibly dedicated to your teaching right and so incredibly dedicated to making sure that you had everything exactly perfect in your classes that sometimes you would be right like this you know you'd be working on fine tuning things at a level that students aren't going to notice and though it would make a difference to students you know like is is it the difference between like and 99.9%, right, you know, (laughs) and so even there, like, I I think we're so perfectionist as a professional culture that we just got to work, work, work and do that, that extra thing and that extra thing and that extra thing more, more, more. And we do that well past the point of impact, right? So a, a concrete example of this, like this is, I can remember a really transformative training I had when, I was at my first job and they had a phenomenal writing program there. They'd done a collaborative research project where they looked at how students actually engage feedback from instructors, right? So I had this narrative that was like, all right, you get a student paper and you just go, right? Like you're just providing like really detailed comments and, you know, like you got to show the student just how much you're investing in helping them to improve. And, right, so you just really mark up that page and give all kinds of good constructive comments. And, you know, you're commenting on their writing and trying to help them improve their writing from the first sentence to the last and what the study that they conducted found was that, you know, they, so they actually sat down with students with a paper they'd gotten back from a professor and said, show me what you did with this, right? And the students would walk them through, like, how they engaged the feedback they got from a professor. And, and the two findings that I really remember were that, you know, one, the students would really only take away two themes from the feedback that, that they got and two, they would give those themes equal weight and then address one of the themes and feel like they've solved half of the problems with the paper. So it would be like, they would say, oh, you need to do more work to support your arguments. You're not constructing strong arguments and you need to fix your commas because you're using them wrong, right? And there might be a bunch of other things they'd look at, that, would be like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna fix those commas and now I've done half of the work that I need to do, right? And really, that's not that important compared to the the critical skill of building the argument. And so I can remember the suggestion that came out there was like, don't just mark up the student paper, right? You know, give a paragraph or two paragraphs where you actually do the kind of, you know, writing focused um, critique, right? Be thematic in your approach about what you see as the big things the student needs to work on and maybe give a couple of examples, but that if you are just marking up that paper from beginning to end, you're investing a ton of time that makes no meaningful difference on the student. Right. And then you're doing it for you. You're doing it because that comports to what is your image of what a professor should be doing, not on what is going to actually make a meaningful impact on that student. So you could actually grade less and be more impactful.
0: Okay, so I hear you saying this sort of narrative of I need to do more is getting us to overgrade. It's getting us to overpublish. It's getting us to, particularly in my case, overprep for class. And I also hear you talking a whole lot about like, unhealthy relationships to work. I hear you talking a whole lot about how that impacts individuals, but also our institutions. And I wonder if there's anything you want to say sort of in the end that that feels like it completes the conversation. I
1: think we have a collective responsibility to try to address this. Because when professors talk to each other, right? oh, how are you doing? How are things going? The most predominant answer is like, I'm so busy, I'm overwhelmed, right? Like, it is not culturally acceptable to be, "Oh, things are pretty chill, right? (laughs) Like, that's, that's not the way we talk to each other, right? I've done this myself. I've talked to other people who sort of give that performative answer of busyness, even when it's not really true. Like, even when you might be in a moment when you don't feel that busy,
0: and even hide when you do go on trips. Like I've talked to people on the podcast yeah. who will hide the fact that they went on a trip in October or something.
1: Yeah, right? Because and right because that might be who knows? You're afraid that that shows up. That person then is going to be on your committee and they're going to be like, well, they're not really doing enough because they went on that trip in October or something like that. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's even softer than that. It's just kind of not generally socially acceptable. Right. Like we, we mirror each other. Right. Oh, you're busy. I'm busy, too. And then that, you know, produces a you know a self-perpetuating cycle in the culture right it just reinforces those kinds of expectations it reinforces that narrative of more 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 i got to do more i'm not doing enough i got right i think that part of getting out of it is not just making individual choices but recognizing that that we don't have to be as wrapped up as we are in this and we can share that we're not as wrapped up in this and and maybe if enough of us start doing that that can sort of Turn the temperature down. And you know, it can be a place where we can collectively move towards more healthy, more sane relationships with our work, right? Like this is how we make a living, but it's not who we are. It doesn't have to be a way of life. It's a really good gig. It's a really good gig, but it's a gig. And, And I think if more of us were there and more of us were willing to be there publicly then more of us could get there, right? Because there'd be less pressure to treat it as a way of life and act like that's just a normal thing.
0: So in the end, I feel like it's really important to let people know that you've also co-authored a book called Just a Job, right? So it's like, you've thought about this stuff a lot, a lot, a lot. I guess I just want to point that out.
1: Yep, I ha- yeah, I did, right? And that's a big thing, right? And that book, you know, it's about, The subtitle of it is Rhetoric, Ethics, and Professional Life. And and it really is about how do we talk about our work as individuals? How do we talk about our work in organizations, right? How do we talk about work in our professions and the ways that, you know, we, we create these narratives that we inhabit? And those narratives feel to us like they're real and they're not. They're narratives. We can tell other stories.
0: Dr. Dan Lair, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. This was really fun to have you on. It was really fun to have. It was fun to be on. Just the designated time, right? Just the designated time to just have this conversation, because I feel like when we have these conversations, they're always very fractured and like short and like five minutes here and 10 minutes there and oh just a second let me go get dinner for the kids and we can continue like I feel like it was really sort of life-giving for me to have a conversation in this way with you so thank you so much thanks for having me. And we'll see you soon. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be home from work in about an hour and a half, I would say.
1: That's probably about right, (laughs) yeah.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Join Self-Compassionate Professors, the Facebook group, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Danielle Delamar, PhD, and say hello.